0: Meaning the alternative to owning stocks is to own either banking liabilities or short-term government exposure with a zero interest rate. If you don't find that as a problem, then you're not going to seek Bitcoin as a solution because you don't have a problem.
1: The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinion of Archetype Wealth Partners or its advisors. The mention of different asset types or securities do not constitute a recommendation for our clients. If you have any questions about the content of this podcast, please contact your advisor. In this episode of Navigating the Noise, I am joined by Nick Bhatia, author of Layered Money and editor of the Bitcoin layer on Substack. Nick explains why he believes Bitcoin is a reserve asset and is an alternative to everything else, which is risk. In the show, we look into what it means to be a fiduciary and how that plays into Bitcoin's story. We also discuss the importance of mass adoption, the rise of stablecoins, and how the economy is being rebuilt as the Bitcoin network continues to evolve. If you're looking to better understand Bitcoin's past and its future potential as an economic network, then join us and listen in. All right. Thanks, everyone, for joining today. I have with me Nick Batia. He is a great person to interview, a great person to talk to about Bitcoin, not only from his knowledge, but uh, because he has experience that many may not have as a former bond trader. So he understands the plumbing of the markets very well. Uh, He teaches at USC, so he understands academia. And then most importantly, he wrote Layered Money, which probably is one of the most important books, in my opinion. Uh, on the space, uh, put that out in the last year or so. So, Nick, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself, and then we'll we'll get rolling. Great, thanks, Kane. Uh, yeah,
0: I wrote a book, uh, published it in January, called Layered Money. It was my attempt to explain Bitcoin from my perspective, which is as a bond trader. And so, I traded U.S. Treasuries, the most liquid bond market that there is, and from that perspective, understood the financial system to be basically two worlds, treasuries and everything else. And I saw Bitcoin really through this, uh, this lens and this light that I think Bitcoin represents that type of relationship with other assets where it is a reserve. It's the, it's the alternative to everything else, which is risk. And the book has done well this year, and I've had great feedback. I'm really excited that people are enjoying it. I think it's important framework, this framework of layered money, uh, to perpetuate in order to explain Bitcoin to more people. And uh, I'm, I'm writing a, a research publication on Substack now called The Bitcoin Layer, and I just want to keep writing about Bitcoin. That's really what, what it's all about.
1: And and well, that's one uh, thing that was kind of interesting to me uh, personally in my own personal journey. Everybody has their own journey with Bitcoin, with crypto, with the just the changing of the financial system. So we see, we still see today there there's a lot of people that still don't get it, or maybe are still ignoring it, kind of Heisman stiff arm um, the idea of Bitcoin. Does writing in your mind help you navigate from not believing? To believing is is that a component maybe for those out there that still can't grasp it? Does that help? I started writing only after
0: I had a one hundred percent conviction that Bitcoin was going to change the world because my career, I had invested so much in reaching a treasury desk and and you know trading the volume that I was trading with the you know uh, as a fiduciary on behalf of amazing huge institutions, both corporations and public institutions as clients, and then trading with the institutions on the street, the top desks in New York, and building relationships with those people. So that walking away from that, I only did that it, because I was certain about Bitcoin. When I started writing about Bitcoin, it was it was really after that conviction came. But my goal is to write about Bitcoin, because I know that I've caught on to something ahead of the curve. So think of myself as an educator, and I want to explain really, you know, niche financial topics that blend Bitcoin with mainstream financial theory. And um, there's definitely an audience. There's de- yeah. that's, what, that's what the book sales told me. The feedback from the book, from the readers on Amazon, the reviews, this struck a nerve, this framework of layered money, my writing style, what people want from me as a writer. So it's all, I just use it as energy to continue that. And so um, I'm just here to write and explain, educate. I love hearing from readers because uh, with the Bitcoin layer, topics are now um, a lot of the time suggested by the subscribers themselves. So and and now have a backlog of things because I, I do read everybody's messages and replies. And when I say I'm interested in your feedback, I mean that genuinely.
1: So it's, it's so it's part of my journey. So there you're kind of taking the startup approach. You've got this idea of a product that you kind of formalize in your head, the old school business model, you would spend years building that product and then release it and wait for people to tell you if they like it or not, which... Could be good or bad, um, but you've kind of taken the startup approach. I have this idea, before I go start building anything, let me put some things out there, just kind of dangle it out there and let the market tell me. And this all started in
0: 2018 when I wrote The Time Value of Bitcoin. and introduced an idea of Lightning Network interest rates and what this meant for, the, for Bitcoin as an asset class and as a new reserve currency. As a new monetary system, financial system. And from basically from day one, I understood people wanted to read my perspective on what I think of Bitcoin, which is it's going to be the reserve currency of the world. We're heading that way. It's going to take time. And it's extremely complex in all the little steps along the way that it takes to get there. And there are hundreds of them. And we're witnessing them each and every day on the path to this. I would like to narrate that because it is, a, it is an ongoing thing. But basically from day one, 2018, uh, I knew that the readers wanted this. And so I'm just, I'm continuing to, to iterate on it. But uh, you're right in that I do have to treat it like a startup because there are some people who are reading my stuff that are new brand new to bitcoin they need you know they need to be explained what hash rate is for example and th- so like just separate into two categories people that know what hash rate is very naturally you say hash rate and you can go you can go along with that go deep. or or if or if you say hash rate and they say what's hash rate think about for me as a writer having to write something and have to choose basically every time which way to go <laughs> on it that is an ongoing process. So, because I do want to, I do want to make my material open to people, but you do want to go deep. And I did get feedback on, you know, my macro update that it was a little complicated on the rate side uh, for for people that are in Bitcoin or not necessarily
1: in my world. So finding uh, a balance between all that has been interesting, but I love it. And that's some, I mean, I think the same thing I spent the better part of six months talking to some colleagues and, you know, ultimately, if we kind of use Bitcoin phrase, orange peeling, them. and it was fits and starts, the questions, they were always different. But I think that is one of the things that makes us all better in the Bitcoin community and, and just the greater ecosystem is it's never, it's the same set of questions, but never coming from the same start or from the same point of view. Um, so it helps. People like yourself refine that content, refine that education piece to, you know, hit small subsets, but also be broad enough for a varying group. There's a couple of things you said there, like talk more on, but but one, so you started writing when you when you felt you were all in. What was that light bulb moment where you'd seen Bitcoin a number of times past because the traditional system? Kind of tells you probably not legit, it's just funny internet nerd money. But what was that light bulb moment where you said, okay, I'm all in. I've got to start writing on this because this is what's, what's next.
0: Yeah. So it was probably reading Nathaniel Popper's book, Digital Gold, because in the appendix, if I remember it correctly, in the appendix, he had an explainer for what it was. And then I went to go read the white paper and it started to sink in what proof of work was. When I understood this proof of work concept, and it was definitely a little bit before I read the white paper, right? I think it was in it was in that way. And then I built my conviction and then I read Uh, Mastering Bitcoin, which for the most part, you know, was difficult for me as a, because a lot, you know, a lot of the book is in code itself, but I think he did a great job in explaining the software and how it worked. in my extent of software expertise is Microsoft Excel, basically. And I can build stuff in Excel and I can think like, I can think like a programmer within the Excel construct, which is, I know is a very narrow. So I mean to say that, Software is something that I understand a little bit about, but I'm obviously far from far from an expert there. I know enough about software to understand that the co- the combination of Sha 256 and the structure of the proof of work, the blockchain, the block rewards, the algorithm, and the difficulty adjustment all combined to me in just this like beautiful, elegant way when somebody explained it as elegant too, that a light bulb went off that it is such an elegant way of introducing money with software. So all that, you know, happened in, in 2016. I remember reading, you know, you remember reading the words of Mastering Bitcoin and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, watching, just watching him explain how the software worked, um, the basic things like keys and addresses and you know, shot 256 and, uh, it, it, it just blew my mind and, and, and then the conviction built, then I started diving into the podcasts and it kept building that conviction.
1: And I think in, uh, maybe it was last week or the week before, um, you were on with safe Dana Moose who wrote another great book, uh, the Bitcoin standard. Um, but you said basically that maybe you can dive a little bit deeper if there is any more than what you just covered, but, um, I think you said it as once you uh, see Bitcoin, you can't unsee it. What do you mean by that? And do you think for most of us, we all feel that thing? And what separates those of us that are willing to kind of go down that rabbit hole versus Maybe the ones that that don't. And I guess I'm angling that from, you know, my side of the business. We deal with wealthy clients. They don't have to get Bitcoin. Um, It's an insurance policy. Um, But. In some ways, it's hard in my mind to think from a fiduciary standpoint that you avoid it like much of the traditional space has up until kind of here in in recent months or last year. So Um, long question, but to you, what does that mean a little bit more once you see Bitcoin, you can't unsee it?
0: Yeah, it is interesting. If you make me dissect it, um, you can't unsee it, but... I'm only coming from my perspective, which is someone that already understood gold and was long gold because of my understanding of the broken dollar system. And then once you see Bitcoin, you can't unsee that it actually is way better than gold ever could be. And the the fact that it has these, it has an exponential adoption curve and you actually have to view the price on a logarithmic scale to make sense of it. Otherwise, it just looks um, a little silly. And so that you can't unsee. But if you are dependent on, a dependence is probably the wrong word, but if you, if you don't understand that the dollar system itself has a fragility and it needs a protection in, in a place in your portfolio, then you're never going to see Bitcoin, even if you understand proof of work and how it works. If you don't think the dollar system itself is a problem, if you don't think that the denomination is a problem, or if the alternative to owning risk in the dollar, meaning the alternative to owning stocks, is to own either banking liabilities or short-term government exposure with a zero interest rate, if you don't find that as a problem, then you're not going to seek Bitcoin as a solution because you don't have a problem. But I was already aware of certain things about how the fed was conducting the denomination like in the global theater and that that was a problem to me so i used gold as an outlet for that problem until i found bitcoin
1: i think i was it was maybe a year or year and a half or so into it before i saw it a couple of times past taking the traditional view but A year or so in, it really kind of hit me, which is I think this is what you're saying and what many people across the world are waking up to uh, post-2020 is what is money? And it's a philosophical question. If you've traded markets, if you've traded different assets and you've, you know, looked at things in that way, it's kind of easy to see it. Like, you know, you said you use gold to kind of hedge out that, you know, problems that the monetary system truly has even though we don't see them if we're able to buy all the goods we want and all that kind of stuff but with bitcoin it it really makes you once you go down that rabbit hole really makes you ask that question what is money um and, and i wrote something along in 2017 or 18 basically on that declining chart of money so money basically has no value and came to that realization that what gives something money is just faith and belief. And that changes throughout time, other than gold is the only thing that lasts forever. Um, but generally, it doesn't have enough velocity to solve enough people's financial problems. So uh, there's limitations. Um, and this kind of mimics that, but does not have that limitation. Um, and so I think a lot of people are waking up to that. The people that are starting to ask that question. In your mind, what gets them over that hurdle and says, okay, worst case scenario, I need to have something here or uh, can they continue to just pass on it for another five years? It, it really has to follow a natural adoption curve. And to bring that to light for, for baby listeners, you can Google. There's a, a chart, it's on Twitter, but it's probably on the internet and it is the adoption curve. Uh, that was the other piece. it shows that Bitcoin is basically where the internet was in 1997. So there's roughly 300 million users, crypto users, and there's 7.8 billion people or so in the world. And today there's 4.6-ish billion internet users. So the opportunity is 300, to 4, 300 million to 4.6 billion. Is that fair assessment of the visual representation of that exponential curve 100 percent. and so
0: when are the last two and a half billion people into this digital money you know non-government money let's say um that you can't you won't be able to convince until the first two and a half billion so it it is actually quite early and it's it still it's still kind of blows my mind how early uh, we are in all this and how far Bitcoin has become. But if you if you you know if you read the headlines like the Mastercard headline recently, really caught my imagination because it it really does goes to show how many people are yet to come and in, into a world in which they're exposed to Bitcoin in any way.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, you're very you, it's just very very early and that's where you can simply to to put it to the masses that maybe don't want to pay attention or aren't paying attention um, maybe not as deeply as you are or, or other people in the space are that's where that email story really helps to say look email looked like kind of a silly thing that would be pointless but look at all the business models that it changed Uh, Web developers in the late 90s, early 2000s look kind of pointless, but look, every business runs and operates. The the core backbone of any company today is email and the internet. I mean, there's lots of other services on top. And so for me, it really paints that picture in the stack. We're at that base layer and only really the last year and a half we've scratched the surface of, of the apps that bring that economy Behind it, it is about
0: the businesses that use the protocol that entrenches the protocol and makes it universal in nature. And so, I was looking at a node map, and I was actually surprised to learn that there are less than a hundred co- countries with, you know, economic Bitcoin nodes in them, um, because there's well over a hundred countries with people exposed to Bitcoin, right? We know Mm -hmm. that. Yep. Um, And many of them had one or two economic nodes in the whole country. And so that goes to show you that we're very early because if you're going to build a business that uses Bitcoin, you need to be running um, a node and use the protocol itself that's what entrenches the protocol and so that you know we'll, we have to see that build out it's not just 300 going to 4.6 billion it's also uh, the number of businesses that run a node and depend on their expertise in using that node to conduct economic activity or even monetary activity which is a different you know there's different use cases for bitcoin it can be used as a, a money it's also a transaction network so um i want to see the business i want to see more businesses joining it the business adoption is also part of it but they follow they follow the same curve
1: and there's two things there i think 2021 showed us the problem that you have when you don't have enough nodes operating in the global system um, with the supply chain issues And that really, in my opinion, uh, stems from decades of operating off where China, Taiwan, these other cheap labor countries are the predominant nodes of production. And then you have a couple of nodes scattered throughout the rest of the world. But by and large, it's just a one way. We make it here, we ship it there. Um, And that stuff broke down, whereas it would make, so to relate it to Bitcoin, if you just have a handful of large nodes scattered throughout the world is kind of hard to see that growth. But once businesses come on adopt and you have a lot of nodes, larger nodes around the world that can pass through that volume uh, makes it make sense. And the internet was constructed that way. Um, but we see the downside of not having it with the way our supply chain works because most countries have just chased, chased the cheapest labor. And so that there's not enough nodes to make it run anymore. The other big question I have in, in your mind is one of the few times in history where nation states, individuals have the ability to opt out of a system that doesn't do them justice and into another that does. How, how much of a factor do you think that plays into things? Um, and where do you, is that a benefit or, or a detriment to the overall picture?
0: Yeah, I think nation states, honestly, are going to come last in all of this. Um, It's people and businesses that matter. So nation states that aren't jailing their citizens for owning Bitcoin uh, are going to be ahead of the game. And so it doesn't necessarily take nation state adoption. It just takes, you know, don't jail your citizens for owning it or wanting to expose themselves to it. And the change comes through that. So, you know, I do think that, you know, the pandemic and the supply chain breaking down and all the things that are going on geopolitically right now are going to have permanent impact on everything that we do as a society, our entire economy. There is a fundamental shift that has happened over the last 24 months. And, you know, I think about your node analogy and think about how the supply chain is going to be rebuilt in a way that is more decentralized with more nodes. And then how does Bitcoin factor into all of that? Uh, Because I do believe that the economy is being rebuilt and some of it, even if it's a fraction of 1% is being denominated in Bitcoin and will never go back. Mm -hmm. And that's the key building block, the foundation of building a new world reserve currency. It's businesses that do Bitcoin, do business in BTC and never
1: are going backwards from what they do, from what, you know, to what they did. To me, one of my big longest running thesis, uh, I thought it would take longer. It seems like this year maybe it sped up, but it's not all that much different than what we saw in the great depression. You know, the battle between gold and Fiat and today, and, and Fiat moves around the world better than gold serve people's means and needs to consume in the fifties kind of, digitization of the financial network. Um, so we're kind of watching those exchanges being rebuilt and all that right now. And then, you know, as it relates to the depression, the battle today is between fiat and crypto and the crypto networks operate distributing value across the globe better than the fiat system. That just is what it is. And so to me, we we kind of got the first hint of that being the case. And understood at um, kind of the government level with OCC allowing digital assets to be held in banks last summer, I think it was. And then this past January coming out and saying, hey, banks can use stable coins instead of ACH, Swift, and Fedwire because they're faster, cheaper, instantaneous, uh, rather than four-day settle. Um, and then here, I think it was, what, two weeks ago last week, uh, FDIC saying, hey, we're trying to figure out how traditional banks can hold Bitcoin. To me, that was kind of the conversion has happened. Now it's what the rules and regs look like to make sure we don't get the over leverage that we saw in the spring and got these futures ETFs that aren't really Bitcoin, but they'll financialize a traditional product that sort of will give access, but not really. Um, Do you think that we are fully converted? Do you agree with that? Do you think um, there's still a lot that has to happen to convert? So, you know, you bring up the OCC. I thought that
0: the ruling in January was um, amazing. The instant node verification networks, they can now use them for uh, money transfer. So an answer to your question is that the change has already happened. It's it is done, um, but so many things. It, that's why it takes time, because all they have to roll out. And you know, one of the things that I've noticed is that you have people that don't ask for permission to go long Bitcoin, and people that are waiting for the government to tell them it's okay. <laughs> and so that's where we are right now, where you get the ETF approval, and people are like, oh, like we can we can own Bitcoin. An ETF and, you know, they don't understand the investment yet, but it's, that's where we are in the adoption curve. It's super early, um, you know, to see Bank of America offering, uh, you know, an, a user interface on your app in which you have a dollar balance and a, and a BTC balance. Um, yeah, I still think we're some time away from seeing that, but it doesn't mean that Bank of America hasn't already greenlit that in their boardroom, right? They they might have already done that where they're and, saying, you know, we're we're definitely going to do this. We're going to roll it out. And uh, we just have to wait as the consumers to watch that happen.
1: And I believe they have the most patents on crypto technologies, I, I believe. And that was an old thing I read somewhere. So it may not be true today, but at one yeah. point they did, which is interesting. Right. And, and Merrill has been all over...
0: This story for quite a while, so you know, they um, all these banks they know exactly what's happening. They actually wrote really coherent reports, most of them in 2018 on Bitcoin, and I read them all. And they, you know, my own bias is my own bias, you know, I'm a bitcoiner, right? And they're they're um, but I was working in asset management at the time, they were my colleagues that worked on the street that were sending me these reports. I read them in good faith and I said, you know, good on you guys. You're aware that this is a game changer. It's an asset class in itself, and it probably has a lot more room to grow uh, with the adoption curve. So they've, they're smart. They've been on it.
1: Um, It just takes time. That's a good point. I think what gets lost in with are we at sixty three thousand or fifty thousand or ten thousand or hey I've made triple uh, the price and the FOMO that 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 creates and the chasing and whatnot. But what gets lost is that key point that you just um, called it is it's an asset class. And every twenty or thirty years, you know REITs and real estate and all that wasn't really an asset class. Derivatives weren't really. A thing. I mean, they've always been a thing, but the markets for them were built out in the seventies and you had reads come along in the eighties, nineties. And so just to me with the world being digital and data being the new oil, we deserve a digital asset class, regardless if, if you just take the whole money theme and, and put it aside for a second. Um, I think that's, something that that gets a little bit lost but but you pointed out and I I do completely agree with that yeah it is an
0: asset class and um it's also uh like you said it's also email it's it's and you actually get to own own land in this new um universe in this in this, this new protocol so one of the things that I have have trouble with is how to describe which asset class it resembles most Um, because even though it has commodity-like attributes, it does have a currency-like network effect to it, Um, but it also has an equity-like stakeholder effect about it uh, that make it very unique.
1: And that's one thing where I try to frame it just to really dumb it down is that it can be an investment if it needs to be. It can be a currency if it needs to be. It can be an asset class if it needs to be, but it doesn't have to be any of those things because at the base, it's just a messaging protocol. So it's not like when when I send you $5 in Bitcoin, you know, whatever the Satoshis are on that, it's not like I'm truly sending you values. It, it's just a message that says, hey, take some money from me, give it to you. And, and we call it money because people believe in it um, that you can go down the street and do something with it. Or, you know, you know, that it's mathematically inclined to go up over a four year period because the way proof of work works and how that matches the same way that gold's pulled out of the ground. One other thing, I want to kind of get your opinion on stable coins, because to me, it's just a crypto dollar, you know, it's kind of like money markets that most people are familiar with in the traditional system, but at the same time, you say stable coins and everybody, what is that? It, is there a relationship there with your kind of knowledge and history of the traditional markets, the financial system, the plumbing, where um, I know a little bit about euro dollars, but not a ton. Um, but they essentially were dollars created outside of the U.S. system as a way for European banks to lever up uh, on assets they didn't know. Um, is that same thing? kind of being replicated with stable coins and is this just another way for dollars to leave one system be used in another, but kind of like just created out of thin air uh, as we transition from traditional to crypto rails?
0: Yeah, I think that, uh, and this is what the fed and Congress is kind of circling around right now is this idea that stable coins are by nature banking liabilities and should be regulated as such because they are created out of thin air. They might have reserves against them. They might not. They might be leveraged. They might not. And that whole activity is is called banking Mm
1: -hmm. and
0: it's a well-established activity. So they can call it stable coins, but if they're in, you know, us domiciled, they are going to be subject to regulation. So, um, that's why a lot of them are not U.S. domiciled, right? And then those crypto dollars are kind of, uh, you know, very similar to euro dollars in the way that they're just dollars that are issued um, and people treat them as good, uh, money good, but, you know, in the effect, who's the, the first layer of that money? It's it's hard to tell, which is also where a lot of the FUD comes from with Tether is that they can't tell what the assets are, where they are, and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, but in the end, that type of activity actually only makes Bitcoin more valuable, because it just shows what what is not Bitcoin, what is not scarce, and what is. So, uh, stablecoins will continue to propagate both onshore and offshore,
1: and I'm sure you'll have blowups. I'm sure you'll have blowups because you you always have an instant. You know the idea of. Everything being solely self-custody, which is a big thing in Bitcoin. It's just not going to happen for most people because they don't live that rigidly. They, don't, they want to be able to point the finger at someone versus being like, hey, it was my fault. I lost. And I understand the Fed's concern, right? Because 2008, 2020 largely you know, happened because your, your dollar system broke down along with other parts of the market that froze up. Um, So now we've got dollars leaving the US system through PayPal and Square to never come back because those assets aren't held as bank deposits where in the traditional world, they were. While at the same time, you have two and a half trillion dollars leaking out into a crypto system and those dollars aren't coming back. And, And then what is that? I think the stable coins are like 125 billion or so right now and so that's that out of thin air money which is interesting as you said about tether if you look at you know what supposedly backs tether doesn't look all that different than what the fed has on their balance sheet commercial paper some cash a bunch of random you know treasury like securities liquid securities but you know the the allocations don't look all that different do you think? They really crack down. I know they wrote a paper, it was out yesterday. I haven't read it yet. Or do you think it's just that natural progression of them getting comfortable and slowly kind of letting out more line to let the ecosystem grow?
0: Uh, I mean, I'm pretty they're probably gonna regulate it pretty pretty strictly because banking banking itself is regulated pretty strictly. And so, you know, activity will leave. And uh, I don't think US is gonna win because it's pro-Bitcoin. I don't think stable coins, like, I don't think a bunch of stable coin startups are going to necessarily thrive here in the United States over the next few years, but you will have JPM coin. You have these big the guys. The like we have a money market. You, you'll, yeah. have, you'll have the main guys coming in offering. That's what USDC is, right? It's like, it's a mainline digital dollar. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, you'll probably continue to see stuff like that. Because I mean, for a guy like you, it's probably normal, but the whole pairs trading where you had to buy Bitcoin, if you're going to own something else to go from Bitcoin to this, to that, to end up wherever you ended up was much more painful than if you just buy the USDC stablecoin. Looks like a dollar, feels like a dollar, acts like a dollar. So you could go back and forth and it made but- it easier to go from, you know, wherever you trade and you decide to go back to dollars and then send dollars back to JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, it made that much easier because you couldn't send them your Bitcoin. Right. Right.
0: Exactly. So um, the rails are being rebuilt a little bit. And that is it does tie back into the layers of money. Now, if you're using Bitcoin as the rails, uh, then, you know, the dollar almost becomes a second, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, a second layer.
1: And, and I, I do agree with you. An earlier point you made is uh, one of the bigger uh, light bulbs here within the last year for me was if you look at the way asset classes react and act together and, and the way that's kind of changed over the last handful of years with all of this stuff that's going on, we really have two choices with our investments. It's dollars or not dollars. And you know if we're in deflation or in inflation, The dollars don't do that well, but the fact is we have to kind of know what our cash flow is and what our needs are on a monthly, semi-annual basis because even though those dollars are going down, Walmart's not accepting Bitcoin. I mean, there's plenty of cards you can get now to kind of pay for dollars, get crypto or or vice versa, but that dollars are not dollars piece I think is something that everybody should understand a little more. Do you have any thoughts around the value of understanding how your assets work together? I piling? think that
0: mer- I think that merchant adoption is going to go a long way, um, and so uh, the hedging abilities for payment processors now um, m- it makes it actually pretty risk free to accept Bitcoin in your store, and you like get Strike better-
1: or some yeah, other-
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, some other payment processor. So you you get. Um, it's cheaper than Visa, and they have instant hedging. And so even with instant hedging and processing fees, it's far cheaper than credit card. So from an economic perspective, yeah, you know, I used to write for OpenNode uh, for a little bit. And so I saw this up close and personal because I was trying to drive the message home that if it's actually cheaper for you to use Bitcoin than it is for you to use the traditional ways, if your customer has Bitcoin, and that isn't that isn't even targeting people who want to accept Bitcoin, they just want they just want the dollars. So I think that type of awareness at the merchant level has begun, uh, where you will see major like Amazon is going to roll. It's very obvious. The writing is on the wall. Amazon will be accepting Bitcoin as payment, at least for AWS at some point in the next year, let's say. They're going to roll it out. And that's going to just open the floodgates for, for everybody else to say, you know, and Amazon will probably do it themselves. They'll probably build, you know, build some capability out themselves or use some white label where they are, um, you know, accepting Bitcoin. And, you know, once once the big guys see that, uh, it just it's gonna snowball, and e- eventually everybody will have to accept Bitcoin. And everybody will have to have a uh, payment processor with a dynamic hedging desk. Um, and it'll just uh, increase the adoption and the you know the pass through the on chain volume, the number of economic nodes, all of that kind
1: of stuff. So I do think merchant adoption is something pretty underrated. And that's, I mean, a lot of that you see in the kind of underbanked, unbanked across the world. That's the benefit of, of Bitcoin for those people that are in Africa or wherever they may be that, you know, have to go 40 miles to a, or, or like what was going on in El Salvador, where they just have to go too far or have to cross lions or have to, you know, go through drug dealers and, and stuff like that, uh, which is dangerous. The key point there is that's the bull case Of this scary chaos and how you get out of the oh no the dollar is going to go away and and the whole system is going to crash um we we have a replacement so you can kind of there'll be chaos but you can avoid that and that kind of if you look at the innovation and the way markets work post 1980 that just big 20 30 year wave of innovation that drove assets and people and all that kind of stuff one question and this is really where i was like hey i need to reach out to nick and, and see if it'll chat um was from a podcast that you did uh peter mccormick what bitcoin did last may um i'm gonna read this off and, and we kind of talk about it but the the premise was you were talking about um being a fiduciary and um ignoring Bitcoin's probably not being a fiduciary there's certain funds and And whatnot that have mandates, so they can't own it because it says it in their documents, and that's tough for for those listeners out there that don't know to just switch gears and add asset classes. It it doesn't happen overnight. But you said it it, something to the effect of, if you're a growth manager and ignoring Bitcoin, you're ignoring that an, an alternative monetary reality has come into existence. It is as if you're not paying attention to the internet. It's a violation of your fiduciary duty calling it a bubble is no longer an excuse. It actually shows that you're doing no research whatsoever. First off, I think it's very powerful. I, I don't disagree with it, um, but it hits home to kind of my industry, the industry you left. So maybe talk to us a little bit more about what you think about the fiduciary responsibility, how that kind of changes and how we in traditional finance work around that to, to provide a new asset class to investors.
0: So I come from a, a fiduciary that is not a growth manager. We're a cash manager, a fixed income manager with the number one goal to preserve capital. And so it was, it would have been far outside of our mandate, for example, to be lobbying for a Bitcoin position for our clients. Um, just you know the anyway it's just completely out of the spectrum right you're trying to preserve uh us dollars that's your mandate it it has nothing to do with the monetary system and you know uh the long-term demise of the dollar that's not why they hired you um and etc but they those same clients hire for a sleeve of their portfolio growth managers In order to identify trends that are uh, leading uh, over the next decade and will capitalize on trends that are happening, those managers, you know, when before I wrote that, now those managers are already long the stocks that, you know, either own Bitcoin or
1: participate. micro strategy converts or something. Well,
0: not even that. I'm talking about Tesla and PayPal, right? I mean, mainline companies that are now you know, materially exposed to Bitcoin, but also MasterCard with their latest investment. Now it's now actually the companies that they own are doing it for them, okay? Um, but that by itself was happening in those earnings reports as of 24 months ago. And so if you're reading them properly, you should have been identifying Cryptocurrency and Bitcoin as a growth, uh, a, a you know a center of growth, that's driving R and D, that's driving uh, words in an earnings release, and those types. That's what I mean by not doing your research. You're skipping over paragraphs then in earnings reports of companies that you own, that I'm just are made- that.
1: Oh, it's just another Bitcoin thing. Yeah.
0: Me- um, yeah. And so exploring how do we get exposure to Bitcoin through concentrated equity position or through some cryptocurrency vehicle that that's all I'm asking. I'm not asking everyone to come out with the, you know, the correct allocation, which is hundred percent Bitcoin, obviously. Um, um, (laughs) But you, you know, tongue in cheek, but you know what I'm trying to say that you have to get your exposure somehow, some way. And so even if you do it by owning, um, you know, uh, some crypto fund with, uh, uh, you know, a few things in there that are nonsensical, you're trying, mm-hmm. you're doing your duty to your clients, which is looking after the mandate that they've given you in a way where you're trying to deliver them exactly what you have promised them, which is exposure to growth. And I just cannot understand how any growth manager at this point could be short exposure to Bitcoin relative to other things uh, that are going on in tech. Um, and to be fair, most are not. Like if you look at VCs, they all have exposure. Um, they're they're very long. They're very long. And, uh, you know, most tech uh Hedge funds, for example, are extremely long Tesla, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, even if that's a way for them to get some exposure to Bitcoin, um, they, are, they are doing it and they're aware of it. So uh, it, I meant to say that you have to wake up to this new monetary reality. It is money. It's pretty global in its consensus now. You asked the question at the beginning about when I was reading Antonopoulos and all that stuff just realizing the the strength of the consensus and the global nature of it um was undeniable i mean this is like the internet it doesn't have any borders to it uh the belief in it doesn't have any bounds it is completely universal
1: do you think that's maybe um again I, I still think it's early it's not late um do you think that's maybe part of the problem for people that maybe still are on the fringe that um, they can't get into those narratives or the you know meme finance just doesn't sit well with them or, or the news cycles. Um, a lot of times you'll see Bitcoin move for reasons that don't make any sense uh, off a of meme, but then like a fundamental piece, like the MasterCard, it moved on MasterCard, but like the MasterCard news will come out and nobody will pay attention, like the OCC stuff. I don't think very few people. No, I
0: don't think anybody cared about the Mastercard thing either. And yeah. honestly, on a micro level, it's not—it's not that big of a deal, right? I mean, it's just—it is just very one very
1: small thing. But it's like the paragraph that you said managers are kind of <laughs> intentionally not paying attention right. to. Yeah,
0: they just skip that paragraph,
1: and um, I'm not
0: skipping it because it is important to see all these things unfold. So, uh, you know, adoption is funny uh, in that it'll just kind of, it'll come in waves, you know, and, um, you'll, you'll see an announcement look like at the backed announcement backed was in the news, you know, over 2017. Yeah. I mean, years ago. Right. And, and, and then it took time and then look at their latest announcement. So that,
1: and that was a good point. I mean, that was one of the things with backed. I saw it this summer, but if there's one person you don't bet against, it's breacher it's because they built ICE in and in created digital commodity futures when everybody said you can't do it. And then 10 years or 15 years later, they bought out the New York Stock Exchange. So in 2017, they said, hey, we're going to build a crypto exchange. We're calling it Backed. And then apparently the SEC came in and said, well, you're probably not going to do that because um, they're a publicly traded company. So it got shelved for... I guess, two, three years. I'm sure they still worked on it, obviously. But then that news came out this summer that they were you know, merging through a SPAC. And to me, it was no, or I guess it was the first of the year, but no brainer. It was just a matter of when, not not if. It, it is crazy. I mean,
0: it is surreal. Like I'm in Bitcoin and I can't, I can't even cover it all because um, it, it's, it's going to happen uh, fast. Uh, it's in all these little headlines that uh are all coming across every day and you know you talk about the adoption when people are gonna you know understand that this is the new monetary reality uh people people are already understanding and if they're if they're not they're just it's just in their nature to wait until you know 17 the of their friends says, have yeah. you know <laughs> have recommended it to them instead of you know the first person so it's just
1: Different types of people. It's like the uh, Amazon Prime user that, that got on in 2012 instead of 2006. Right. Um, yeah, n- not wrong, but there's a lot of years that you could have saved on shipping and got good stuff. Right. Um, so maybe to, to wrap it up, uh, we could talk for, well, at least I could, another three days. But um, <laughs> what do you, so you mentioned there you're in Bitcoin full-time, writing. And it's still hard to keep up. Um, what advice would you have for new people, old people that have been meaning length of time, haven't been in the space to um, not chase every shiny object. And that's because that happens. Um, but but to keep focused um, in whatever their niche that they find in the space. What, what advice would you give there?
0: Well, that's my goal with the Bitcoin layer. It's to write to help people strengthen their conviction in Bitcoin, not get distracted by other things. Um, I don't write really about uh, uh, the whole crypto universe because I don't think that, I mean, I just think it can lead to distractions. And so, uh, but it is important to address why they are distractions. And um, so, you know, it is my goal to provide that narrative and strengthen the conviction explain to people what's happening, explain the big picture instead of trying to, you know, uh, obsess over every single little headline. Um, the fact is that, you know, the, the narrative that the government is going to ban, ban Bitcoin is still so strong, it actually is shocking when I go outside of Bitcoin. So, um, you know, basic things, basic things like that, like learning how... The government is doing the opposite of banning Bitcoin. You, you're talking about the OCC. Read these rulings. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are there. They'd actually take your breath away if you came in thinking that the government is going to ban Bitcoin. Look
1: at what the Treasury Department is issuing. Well, the the other big move, which was in between all that, the guy that runs the SEC, Gary Gensler. Well, what did he spend the last five years or three years doing? Was teaching an extensive course at mit on bitcoin that's right so if you look at the history in the past of the people that they put whether you like the government or whether you like one party or the other or not but if you just look at the past and their histories of who they put at these head chair positions department and, and lead positions it kind of tells you what direction we're going now the outcomes or the path is always different than what you write down but it, they don't put a guy with probably some of the best crypto knowledge out there mm-hmm. as an SEC chairhead uh, to not participate in crypto. Right. And
0: and that's why, uh, you know, if you step into my shoes, you see it like me obsessing over Gensler's Bitcoin obsession. It It's almost like uh, you'd be screaming from the rooftop that, you know, Bitcoin is here to stay. It, it's it almost, it's a disservice to how I can be spending my research. I have to focus in on the, on the nitty gritty things that are affecting instead of, you know, covering, you know, MasterCard, for example, mm-hmm. that MasterCard has announced, a, you know, some crypto rewards thing. Um, it's, it's not the best use of my time uh, because I think that the information is already out there. And enough people are long, Like, uh, you know, in in a f- for example, I have a, fam- a family friend group group text that I started in 2016 um, to talk about Bitcoin to my friends and family. Try to explain to them what this whole thing is about.
1: How many of them dropped?
0: Well, <laughs> almost almost none of them, and almost Good. all of them are Good. long in the chat. Good. Good. And, you know, almost zero of them were long when I started it. So I I mean, and of course, this is, it's a small sample set. And obviously, people that are in my circle, family yeah. members and things like that. So um, they have exposure. But it's like, um, now I look and I, I don't have to text these guys about, hey, you know, Bitcoin is going mainstream. No, we're, we're actually, they're actually all subscribers to the Bitcoin layer. We talk about you know, what I just wrote on and what are their questions about the ETF? How is it going to affect Bitcoin? How is it going to affect our position? Should we be long this or that? Um, you know, that's, that's my audience now. It's not, I wrote layered money, expose you to the asset class. Um, once you're in it, in the asset class, uh, you know, let's talk about the strength of your conviction, a hundred percent Bitcoin allocation, what it takes to come to that, can, you know, decision and, and um, making you believe that that is a strong allocation.
1: It's a strong decision at the very basic level. One question I still get, which is interesting, but it still comes up is there's only 21 million, three or 4 million are, you know, roughly estimated to be lost. So that means there's really maybe only 17 or 18 million. Um, And What's very different, I think some traditional people have a hard time with is, wait a second, you're telling me I don't have to buy one Bitcoin. No, you can buy fractions. It's eight decimal places. It's one divided by 100 million, not traditional dollar system, one divided by 100. Um, just want to throw that in there. As they're elementary, but people are still asking every day. Mm-hmm. We're uh, just going to wrap it up. Where can people find you? Um, obviously, I think everyone should read Layered Money. Uh, where can uh, people find you?
0: Yeah, so Layered Money is on Amazon. Uh, and you can find it on there. It's also the audio book is also available. People have loved the audio version. And uh, so I hope you go check out the book. And if you want to keep uh, reading what I'm writing about, Please subscribe to the Bitcoin layer.substack.com. And uh, on the Bitcoin layer, I'm trying to narrate this march toward
1: world, world reserve currency. Um, and so I hope you'll join me there. Perfect. Well, thanks for joining today and uh, really appreciate the insight. Thanks, Kane.